Lord, thank you so much for just all the ways already in this service that you have uh, shown your goodness and uh, put the gospel on display for us, Lord, through the singing, uh, the scripture reading, the baptisms, the prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the way that you allow the church to reflect on and re-experience the good news of the gospel uh, through these corporate gatherings. And so, Lord, today as we open up Ephesians 1, um, I pray that that would continue to be on our minds, that we would see and hear and remember the goodness that you have shown to us through Christ, and that we would glorify you and praise you more because of it. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Uh, well, uh, almost, almost by coincidence, uh, we've, we've already talked about what we are going to be talking about today with that last song that we sang. And, uh, and I say coincidentally because Tim and I did not plan that at all, but um, if you read just kind of the last line of that, uh, that chorus in the song, I mean, it really talks about what we're going to be talking about uh, today. Um, so my future is heaven I praise God for what he's done. Um, that's what we're going to be talking about today in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. You may have noticed as we read that passage today, a big theme in it, a big topic that kind of comes out is this idea of inheritance. And that's a, a very uh, common theme throughout all of scripture, actually. It's also a, a theme or an idea that we're not unfamiliar with. We still use that word. We're still uh, very uh, familiar with what inheritance means. Maybe some of you have experienced uh, receiving an inheritance. You've benefited from an inheritance or you're in line to receive an inheritance. And uh, so if you're just familiar with that idea at all, you know that um, by almost definition, an inheritance has kind of a trickle-down effect to it. So you have uh, sort of the head of a family who has some kind of um, offering blessing to bestow on their family. And so that, that blessing, whether it's finances or assets or properties or whatever, is going to kind of trickle down through the family to uh, the different branches, the different members of that uh, family. And so to illustrate kind of what I mean by that, I actually brought in something that I've inherited. So I don't know if you can actually see these on my finger, depending on where you're sitting. But these are two rings on my finger. And I inherited these uh, from my grandfathers, both of them, my uh, mom's dad and my dad's dad. Uh, and I didn't actually receive them directly from my grandfathers. What happened was when they passed away, they left these rings to my mom and my dad. And with me being the only boy in my immediate family, um, they said, well, why don't you go ahead and actually take them? And, uh, and so they were very kind in that way and very uh, generous in that way. And of course, my plan is that one day I will be able to give at least one of these rings to Aiden, my son. And, uh, and hopefully, uh, if we have another son, I'll be able to give the second ring to that son. That's actually why, that's why I want another boy. I have two rings. Um, <laughs> it's just easy math. Uh, and so you can kind of start what I, uh, or you can start to see what I mean by sort of this trickle-down effect. Uh, my hope is that as Aiden and maybe another son uh, receive these two rings, that they'd actually be able to look back and understand where they came from. That is, understand where the rings came from, but actually understand where they, as people, came from. That they would kind of see this history of our family and remember that 
lineage. Remember that heritage or that legacy that they have come out of, the household that they are a part of. So that's the kind of power that an inheritance, the kind of significance that an inheritance can have in a person's life. And what Paul tells us in this passage, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, is that Christians also have an inheritance. We have a heavenly inheritance. And that inheritance trickles down through our spiritual lineage. And so at the top of that lineage, we have God the Father who bestows his, uh, his heavenly riches and glory upon Christ, the rightful heir of all things. He's the Son of God. But in Christ... All of these blessings and riches are transferred to the Christian. You see this all laid out in Ephesians uh, 1.3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's a, that's a pretty big statement that Paul is making there. Because what, what he's implying is that it's, it's not just that Christ has blessed us uh, uh, in, in one kind of moment through this act of justification, but it's that actually in Christ we continue to experience the favor and the blessing of God for all eternity. That we are left this inheritance from God through Christ. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is just basically look at how Paul speaks about this inheritance. I want to highlight four different uh, characteristics or descriptions that he gives to this inheritance. And my hope is that we can, through, through this passage, better understand what this inheritance is, how we get it, and why we even have it. And so with that in mind, the first thing that we see about this inheritance in this passage is that it is given, not earned. It's given, not earned. And so leading up to this passage in verses uh, 3 through 10, we see that Paul describes Christians primarily as the recipients of God's action and affection. It's not the other way around. So he says that God has blessed us in, the, in these uh, verses. He's blessed us. He's chosen us. He's predestined us for adoption. He's redeemed us. He's lavished his grace upon us. He's made his will known to us. And then when we come to verse 11, the first verse in our passage this morning, Paul kind of keeps up with that same language. And we see that in God's choosing or predestining us, it's that we then become recipients of God's inheritance. In other words, the ongoing blessings of God do not come to us as a result of anything that we have done. There is nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves worthy of receiving God's inheritance, to make ourselves good enough or attractive enough to God that he would say, yeah, I trust you with all my, my riches, all my blessing. That's not the reason that God gives us an inheritance. But instead, it's that those blessings come to us as the product of being in covenant relationship with God. And that's a relationship that is initiated by the Father and it's made possible through Christ. If you know your Bible well, you know that that isn't a, an unfamiliar, uncommon 
uh, concept when it comes to the way that God deals with his people. We see that same idea kind of scattered all throughout the Old Testament. It's, you know, it's foreshadowing this idea of now in the New Covenant, Christians inheriting the blessings of God. And so one example of that is in Numbers 26, uh, where Israel is preparing to take possession of the promised land, right? This is their inheritance as God's people, that he has, he's promised them through Abraham that he would one day make them a great nation, give them this, this land that they would dwell uh, with one another and with him. And all throughout this chapter, God uh, has Moses literally take a roll call of all the tribes of Israel. You know, how many people are in each tribe? And he does that so that the land can be portioned out or divided up according to the size of each tribe. And so if you come from a bigger tribe, you're going to receive a bigger plot of land to share with that tribe. If you come from a smaller tribe, you're going to receive a smaller plot of land or a smaller allotment of land. So we see that all explained in, in uh, verses 55 and 56 of Numbers 26, if you want to write that passage down and, and kind of go back to it at, a, at another time. But what's interesting, I think, about that is that if you were an Israelite in this scenario, no matter what tribe you are a part of, practically speaking, you weren't going to inherit the whole promised land, okay? So Israel as one nation is going to occupy the promised land, right? Through God's faithfulness to them, he's delivering this promised land to them. But practically speaking, you were not going to personally occupy all of that land or inherit all of that land. That land was going to be portioned out. It was going to be divided based on something that was very much outside of your control, which was the tribe that you came from, right? The, the line of Israel that you were born into. And so in some ways, the inheritance that we receive in this new covenant under Christ is similar to this Old Testament kind of inheritance in that um, we receive it uh, out of, out of something or, or some, through something that's out of our control, um, it's as a result of God's choosing us, electing us, calling him to himself. But unlike the inheritance of Israel, uh, unlike that inheritance with the promised land that was portioned out, our inheritance is not portioned. It's not divided or limited in any way because the pathway of our inheritance comes through Jesus Christ, who is the rightful heir to all of God's blessings. And so if you are in Christ, Paul says, all of those blessings are extended to you. You are heirs with Christ, who is the son of God. You are made children of God and now are in the line of inheritance along with Christ. And so this inheritance that we have in Christ, it is given to us. It's not earned. But even more than that, I think it's given to us without measure. We experience all the blessings of God, all the inheritance of God through Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the first characteristic of this inheritance. The second characteristic, though, according to Paul, is that it's meant to praise God, not ourselves. This inheritance is meant to praise God, not ourselves. Verse 12 says that this inheritance comes to us so that we who were the first to hope in Christ or I think actually a better translation would be, we who have already hoped in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, notice what this verse does not say. 
This verse does not say that, that God in Christ gives us an inheritance so that we might praise his glory. What this passage actually says is that God in Christ gives us an inheritance so that we might be to the praise of his glory, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. So the entire purpose of our existence, if we are in Christ, if we have this eternal inheritance that Paul is talking about, our whole purpose in life is to be these vessels of praise for God because of his glory. And I think that's, that's an important distinction to make. I know maybe that can seem like splitting hairs, but that is an important distinction to make because I think it starts to push against maybe our, our typical understanding or practice of worship as a church. Because how we tend to think about worship is as something that is reserved for specific spaces or moments or days in our lives. And so we have worship music, for example. Um, we have worship centers or places of worship that we come, that it is reserved for the purpose of worship. A lot of times we call Sundays a day of worship, uh, right? I mean, there's tons of churches meeting today on Sunday for the purpose of worshiping God. And so Sundays become like that day of worship in, in the Christian faith. It's a very common practice among uh, the body of Christ. And, and none of that is bad. None of that is unbiblical. I don't think it's unbiblical or, or wrong to have worship music or to call this space a, a, a room of worship or a center of worship or whatever, or call Sunday a day of worship. But because we so often use that language, if there's any disadvantage to that or any danger in that, it's that we can start to compartmentalize or restrict our worship to these very specific moments or days or spaces in our lives. So all those other parts of our lives, all the other uh, music that we listen to or that we sing, uh, all the other days uh, in, our, in our calendar, in our week, those are just neutral in terms of our worship to God, right? And then, and then when those special moments come up, those specifically worship moments come up, that's when we really give worship the attention. That's when we give God the attention that he deserves. But I think Paul's point in saying this phrase this way is that he, he wants us to remind us praise does not happen in, in a vacuum. It should not be compartmentalized to these specific kind of moments or days. The natural response to the inheritance that we have in Christ is praise. And it is an all-encompassing praise. It is supposed to touch every single part of our lives. Our entire existence is meant to praise God. Uh, a few months ago, Abby and I uh, bought a new house. And um, there's a lot of stressful things with buying a house or selling a, a, a previous house. I think the worst thing, though, is just moving, okay? It is loading up all the boxes, packing up all the things, uh, putting it in a truck, driving that truck to the new house, unloading all those things, opening up the boxes, um, convincing yourself that you packed something that now you cannot find. Uh, you know, all these things, they're, they're a, a terrible experience. But imagine that we've done all that. Imagine that we've, we've 
packed up all the boxes. We've driven them over. We've unpacked all the boxes. We're opening up all the boxes now and getting everything out and putting furniture in position, deciding what we want the, the flow of the house to be. And, uh, and in doing all of that, we hear this knock at the door. And so we open the door and standing on the front porch are the previous owners of the house. And they go, hey, hey, you know, um, listen, uh, I, I hope you guys got settled in. I, I, I bet it's been a really stressful day. Listen, we're beat, so we're just going to head up to our room, call it a night, but we'll see you tomorrow. And, uh, you know, I'd probably stop them and, and try to explain to them, uh, we own the house now, you know? Um, and maybe they, they kind of shout back, well, listen, I know you guys own the house, but we're not going to give up our room. You know, that's our space, right? And so I'd, I'd probably start to explain to them, like, that's not how this works. Every single blade of grass in the yard is mine. Every single wall and door in this house is mine. Every fiber of the carpet is mine. The half-working water heater in the basement is unfortunately mine. And you're not going to come into this house unless I let you in. And when you come in, it's under my terms, my authority, because I own this house. It's all mine. That's what it means to own something in its entirety. And friends, if you are in Christ, God owns you. He has bought every single part of who you are through the blood of Jesus. Everything, all of you, belongs to him. He's brought you into his family. He's made you a member of his home. He's established you in the line of inheritance along with Christ. And so every single part of who you are should be seen as an instrument of praise to God. Every hour we exist is intended to bring God praise, to bring him glory. Praise is not supposed to be restricted to a specific day of the week or certain activities that we involve ourselves in. Praise is about giving God your entire life and saying, here it is. It is all yours. Do whatever you want. You've bought it. You've paid for it. It belongs to you. That is the right response to the inheritance that we're given in Jesus Christ. And so this inheritance is given to us by God. There's nothing that we could do to earn it or deserve it. It's meant to praise God, not ourselves. And then third, it's guaranteed, not uncertain. This inheritance that we have in Christ is guaranteed. It is not uncertain. So Paul goes on in verse 13 to say, in him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now that word sealed, it's used a, a few different times in the New Testament. I think it's actually only used by the Apostle Paul uh, in reference to the Holy Spirit. And it can mean a, a few different things. And so the first is that the Spirit seals believers in the sense that he protects or he secures us. Uh, and so uh, an example of this would be like thinking of a piece of wood, that you are sealing that piece of wood. If you want to use that as a piece of furniture or whatever, or I don't know, just a nice piece of wood to look at. Um, 
But you seal that piece of wood, and, and the point of sealing it is to protect it. You want to prevent any kind of uh, decay or moisture, anything from the environment, from tainting that, uh, that wood. So you seal it and you protect it. Another example is that you would uh, typically seal a letter with a wax seal so that it can't be opened until it arrives at, uh, at the person, whoever you send it to, so that they can read it, no one else, right? And so in that sense, the Spirit seals us or he protects us for eternity because the Spirit is dwelling in us. There's nothing that can actually remove us from the household of God. And in that way, our inheritance in Christ is secured. It's guaranteed. But the second way that that word sealed can be used is as a mark or a sign. It's something that uh, proves or verifies something. So an example of this would be uh, like a family crest or an insignia. It's something that that marks someone and kind of um, identifies them as a member of something larger, a larger group of people. It's a a formal endorsement of something. And so in that way, the Holy Spirit doesn't just protect or secure our inheritance, but he actually confirms us as the rightful recipients of God's inheritance. That the Spirit actually marks us and sets us aside and said, yes, this is a member of God's household. They are in line to receive all the blessings of God Here's the proof. I'm the proof. I've sealed them. I've secured them. I've guaranteed this inheritance to them. And all of that happens, Paul says, at the moment of salvation. There are three things that he kind of lists out in this verse, verse 13, that happens with Christians. It says that you heard, you believed, and you were sealed. And, and the way that he words that, it's they all happened at the same time. You heard, you believed, you were sealed. In other words, God's generosity toward us does not end with his saving you. In fact, he's not even delayed in his saving you. He isn't waiting to see if you will turn out to be a disappointment or not before he kind of writes you into the family will. He is eager to pour out his blessings on you, so much so that he secures your membership in his family through the Holy Spirit. Spirit, that he says, you are not going anywhere. My blessings are going to come to you. They have been secured through my spirit. He is sealing you. He's protecting you. He is promising what you will receive one day through Christ. Maybe the most devastating, most significant judgment that a parent can place on their child is actually writing them out of the family will. It is their way of literally saying, I do not consider you a member of my home anymore, a member of my family. Whatever you've chosen to be, whatever decisions you've made in life, they have not met my expectations. Uh, they, have, they have not met my standards that I have for you. And so whatever kind of wealth, whatever possessions that I have in this life, I want you to touch none of it. And listen, if you are in Christ, Ephesians 1.13 says, God will never make that judgment on you. All the sins that have made you unworthy, all the expectations that you have not met, all the disappointments that have been caused 
with your decisions. God has placed all of that on Christ. He's given you Christ's righteousness in its place and he's sealed you with the spirit so that he can show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness. That's what it means to be a child of God, an heir with Christ to God's inheritance. It's not because we're worthy. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because there's anything within us inherently that makes us attractive to God. It's because he's chosen us and he is determined to use us as vessels of his generous grace. And that's a guarantee. That promise has been secured through the Holy Spirit. All right, so those are the the first three characteristics of this inheritance. But the final point that Paul makes about, about this inheritance that we have through Christ is that it is ultimately gained in the future, not now. It's ultimately gained in the future, not now. So it's given to us. It's not earned by us. It's meant to praise God. It's not meant to praise ourselves. It's guaranteed to us. There's nothing uncertain about this inheritance. And then finally, it's ultimately gained in the future, not now. So he says in verse 14 that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And that word guarantee, it's actually probably better translated as down payment. Uh, So it's the same idea as like putting a down payment on a house or uh, a car loan or any any kind of loan, honestly. It's, It's to finalize that purchase, right? That's the point of a down payment. And so what Paul is trying to explain here is that the Spirit in sealing us also also acts as the down payment or the first installment on the fuller inheritance that we will one day receive in eternity. It's not just that the Spirit guarantees or promises our inheritance. It's actually that, that he's the foretaste of or he's a glimpse into our future inheritance. And so while we may not uh, receive this inheritance fully, we may not uh, actually gain this inheritance fully until eternity, we will certainly experience on some level this inheritance here and now as we are filled with uh, the Spirit, as, as we are baptized in the Spirit, as we live in the Spirit. Uh, And so as we continue to read this letter uh, to the Ephesians, what we see is that to live in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to walk according to the Spirit, essentially means to live in gospel unity as the church. To actually uh, model the unity that we now have in Christ. Now, what what I'm about to say may seem like a tangent for a second, but I promise you that there is, we're going to bring it all back to this passage here in a second, okay? Um, and, uh, and so what I want to do is kind of explain the gospel as Paul explains the gospel in Ephesians and actually in, in several other places throughout the New Testament because there are some times that I think we talk about the gospel in a different way than Paul talks about the gospel, Okay? And so to, to sort of visualize and illustrate what I mean, I want to I wanna just give us two graphs, okay? Um, ever since our eschatology series, we have not had enough graphs 
in this, uh, in this church. I don't know if you felt similarly, but I felt that. And so I want to bring them back today. Redeem the graph. Hashtag redeem the graph. All right. So, <clears throat> so how we typically think about the gospel, this is probably a gospel kind of presentation or understanding of the gospel that we're all very familiar with. Um, and so it's, it's this idea of I have sinned against a holy God, right? That's kind of what the, the big drop in the timeline of a person represents. Is that, it's that, you know, sin is, uh, it's bad. It separates us from God. And so I live in sin, in this separation from God. But then I encounter Jesus, right? Through whatever, you know, whatever means someone shares Jesus you discover Jesus uh, sitting in a church service like this one. You read of Jesus in the Bible, whatever it is, but you encounter Jesus and Jesus saves you from all that sin, right? He redeems you. He forgives you of all that sin. He's gracious to you in, in, in doing that. And so because of Jesus, now you are living your life in an upward trajectory that you are day by day pursuing holiness. You're growing in, uh, in, in spiritual maturity and that keeps kind of going on and on. It's probably not actually just like a perfectly upward line, right? It's up and down. But, um, but you keep doing that until one day you are in heaven. And then that process is complete, right? You are made completely holy before God. And so you get to enjoy God forever and ever in heaven. Now, let me, let me just pause there. And because uh, and maybe some of you are hearing this and, and wondering, like, is he about to say that is not the gospel? Um, no, that is not what I'm about to say. So, um, and so there's nothing about this that is necessarily incorrect, that is uh, heretical or unbiblical. But I think what Paul says is that that is a potentially very limited understanding of the gospel. It's a very limited explanation of sin and just how significant sin is and, and what Christ even does in order to conquer sin. And so he says, you're not thinking of these, these concepts broadly enough. And I think when we start to see the gospel in the way that Paul describes it here in Ephesians, it's, it's actually far more beautiful, far more significant, even far more complex in, in a good way that we realize just how far reaching the gospel is. And so the way that Paul is going to explain the gospel in Ephesians and really throughout the New Testament, is that sin, it affects me, but it hasn't just affected me. Sin corrupts all of humanity, right? When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, when they rebelled against God, that was something that has now spread through the entire human race moving forward. And so just by being born as a human, you are born in sin, and the immediate effect of sin, Paul says, is this kind of fracturing, this splitting out of humanity. And so we're separated from our creator because of sin. We're separated from each other. We see this played out. I mean, we see it immediately played out with Adam and Eve that they're cast out of the garden, that they don't experience God's presence in the same way anymore because sin has separated them from their creator but we see it between humans even, I mean, almost immediately, at least in, in the Bible's uh, uh, writing out of this story and this narrative, we see Cain and Abel, because of sin, have this conflict between one another, right? I mean, it literally, it's, it's the worst conflict you can have. Cain kills Abel. It's not great. And even Paul, when he's writing Ephesians, he calls this, this, uh, this conflict, this fracturing out of humanity, he calls it this wall of hostility in Ephesians 2, 14. 
And so we even see this continue to be played out now, right? How people rise up against one another, how they seek to destroy one another, whether it's emotionally or mentally or physically or spiritually, it doesn't matter. But we see this war being waged now within humanity and between humanity and God. There is this fracturing out because of sin, this separation that exists now relationally in humanity. And so God's response to this problem of sin is that he, in the midst of all these fractured people, he chooses one people to be his chosen people. It's the people of Israel. And it's through this one line of Israel that he's now going to produce a Messiah, a Savior, a King, Jesus Christ. And so through Jesus then, uh, I should go back, Jesus will be everything that we were supposed to be as humans and yet couldn't be because of sin, right? He will be literally the perfect human. He will be everything that we no longer are due to the sin that we are guilty of. But even though he's perfect, he's actually going to bear all of that sin and the weight of that sin on the cross. He's going to pay the penalty for all of, all of uh, uh, humanity. And so that all people can be reconciled to God and to one another in Christ. This is actually what Paul later on in Ephesians calls the new humanity. That's the, the, the wording that he uses in Ephesians 4.24. Uh, maybe you've heard it as the new self, but really it's a new humanity. It's an entirely new group of people. It's this bringing back together what was fractured by sin. So all of these fractured parts of humanity are now coming back and finding their unity in Christ and reconciliation in Christ. And to emphasize all this, Paul is going to use a lot of different language to communicate the way that Christ restores humanity. He's going to say that in Christ, we are one body. We are united to one another. We're a household. We're a temple that's being built up together in Christ. We're family members or we're children of God. If you've never noticed this about Paul, I mean, literally today, just go read Ephesians. It'll take you like 15 minutes and start looking for all the different ways that Paul's trying to communicate the same thing. It's that Christ is literally bringing us back together in him. He's reconciling us to God and he's reconciling us to one another. And even what we saw today with baptisms, it is a picture of that. There's a reason why we do baptisms in front of everyone. It's not, it's not to embarrass the person. It's because through baptism, we are literally identifying ourselves with the body of Christ. We are saying, in Christ, I've been made a member of God's household, just like you've been made a member of God's household. And we are being built up together in one thing, one body, one new humanity in Jesus Christ. And we're reconciled to God and we're reconciled to one another. Now, the reason, going back to our, our actual passage, the reason that I bring that all up is because Paul says that the Spirit's role in the life of the Christian is to empower and sustain that unity that we have in Christ. It's to literally fuel this new humanity that's being established right now and will be made complete in eternity. And so I would argue that what it looks like to experience the Spirit, what it looks like to actually gain that, that kind of foretaste of our inheritance is to live in a way that maintains and models 
this new humanity which is forming through the cross. That as we walk in the Spirit, we exemplify what it looks like to be a part of God's family and recipients of God's inheritance. And in doing that, the world literally gets a glimpse into what heaven will look like, what heaven is about. That heaven is about reconciliation between humans and between God. And so the church is meant to point to heaven, not just to look forward to it, to point others to it. Hey, do you want to see what heaven looks like? You want to see what heaven is all about? Look to the church. Look to these people living out the reconciliation that they have in Christ. Look at the unity that they have with one another that is rooted in something far beyond themselves, that is rooted in a power of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for them, a power that's being sustained by the Holy Spirit day after day after day. And so the charge that I want to give you today is I think the charge that Paul gives to us, not just in this passage, but throughout all of the book of Ephesians, which is to live in a way worthy of your inheritance. If you are in Christ, live as though you are children of God. Live as though you are members of his household. That You've been united in Christ and sealed by the Spirit. There are so many things in this life that we can chase, that we can get distracted by. There are people in this room, you've done every single thing you can to build a kingdom and inheritance here on earth. You've done everything to protect it and secure it. And what Paul is saying here is that, listen, the real riches are not in this life. The real riches, the real blessings are not in this life. In Christ, God is giving us a future inheritance and it's sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's protected by him, not you. And so if you are in Christ, your mission and your purpose in this life is to model this new humanity that Christ is creating and that will be fully realized one day in eternity. It's to give those around you a glimpse into the restoration of heaven as you now walk in the Spirit as members of God's household. That is my prayer for you. It's my prayer for, for all of Pennington Park as we all seek to faithfully follow Christ together, to be built up into this new humanity together. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much that you, not only do you save us, but Lord, you continue to pour out your blessing on us. That Lord, you give us your spirit to seal us and protect us, to guard us, to give us a taste of what heaven will be like one day. And so Lord, I pray we will look to that day as, as ultimate fulfillment. Lord, it's not now, but but you also let us experience some of it now. And so I pray that we would walk in the Spirit all the days of our lives, that we would praise you with everything that we are, all that we do. Our entire existence would seek to praise you and glorify you because of what you've done, because of who you are for us, and that we would rejoice in this inheritance, knowing that our hope is in the future, it's not now. And so we look forward to that day together. We rejoice together in unison, in unity, the unity that you've given us in Christ. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.